I don't ask a doctor to be warm and fuzzy. I don't ask them to hold my hand every day. I ask them to be really good at their job. But part of being really good at your job is to listen to your patients to what they're saying to you. Welcome to Tilted, a Lean In podcast. Each week we explore the uneven playing field, the gender bias that lurks in unexpected places, the impact it has on our everyday lives, and what happens when women lean in and start driving change. I'm your host, Rachel Thomas, co-founder and president of Lean In. You're probably thinking about a lot of things when you go to the doctor. Am I okay? How long will this take? How much will this cost me? But I'm willing to bet you don't think about whether your gender is affecting the care you receive. Why should it matter? Well, if you're a woman or a man who cares deeply about a woman or a girl in your life, you should. It turns out that healthcare is sexist, and that can have life or death consequences. For years, medical research was centered on men. Women were literally left out. And study after study shows that doctors don't always take women's health care concerns as seriously as they should. As a result, women are too often misdiagnosed and incorrectly treated, and sometimes go years without getting the right diagnosis. In today's episode, I talked to Serena Williams, yes, that's Serena Williams, about her own harrowing and very biased health care scare. I also talked to two amazing doctors on the front lines of driving change to understand what's going on and what we can do about it. As an athlete, Serena Williams needs no introduction. Roger Federer, who knows a thing or two about tennis, says she's the greatest player of all time. She's won 23 Grand Slam titles and counting, and she's done more than any player to redefine women's tennis as a sport of power and athleticism. But we're actually not here to talk about sports today. We're here to talk about the terrible health scare you experienced after the birth of your daughter, Olympia, and about how bias in healthcare affects too many women. Serena, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. So let's start with the birth of Olympia. Tell us about that day. Um, it was a magical day. And actually, I went in at 39 weeks because I have had prior health issues with PEs and DVTs as well. So um, I went in at 39 weeks. Um, and then I got induced or lightly induced. They just started the process and I started having contractions. And then I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have a baby. Like, this is really happening. I can't believe this is happening. So the day of, the day of really was a, a wonderful experience. And how long have you struggled with both issues? So I had my first DVT um, in 2003 after I had knee surgery. Typically, you get it after surgeries or it could be um, genetic. And are these blood clots, basically? Or? These are blood clots, yeah. Okay. And blood clots have a tendency to travel if they're not treated immediately. So if there's swelling in the leg or, you know, you're walking and that for no reason you, you get short of breath, that's typically signs of you might have either a blood clot or a pulmonary embolism or a DVT. So that is an unfortunate segue into what happened after Olympia was born. I know that you suffered a lot of medical complications. Can you walk us through what happened? So after Olympia was born, I had some serious medical complications. You know, I ended up having to have an emergency C-section, which was totally unexpected. Um, and after that, I, you know, 
I just remember being short of breath and I couldn't breathe. And I remember telling the doctor, okay, I need a CT scan with dye um, so we can get a look at my lungs because I feel like I have some PEs in there. He didn't quite listen to you, did he? Well, I had a female doctor and um, actually... Um, the nurse didn't understand what I was saying, and she thought it was I was on the the the, the medicine was making me because I had the C section. I was on medicine. She thought the medicine was you know making me loopy, and you know I was like, no, 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 I'm really clear. Like I'm telling you exactly what I need. And um, actually, my doctor was very responsive, and um, they ordered different tests that I was like, no, I don't need this test. I need a CT scan. A lot of doctors don't understand that patients really know their body. We live in our bodies every day, um, and it's really important for them to listen to us. You felt initially not really listened to. Other doctors didn't understand what I was saying, but my personal doctor that delivered the baby, she understood straight away. And, you know, when you have a a C-section, there's more than one doctor, you know, that comes in. There's different people and you're in a hospital and different doctors come in to check on you for different types of things. And she was the only doctor that really heard and was really able to listen to me. And it was pretty much helped save my life. It was pretty impressive. And by the way, I have to go on record. I'm so angry at myself for saying he and assuming your doctor oh, was no. a man. <laughs> <laughs> no. So um, uh, I'm glad she was a woman, and I'm glad she listened when the other doctors weren't. And then what happened? You had a couple really tough weeks. Yeah, I had some crazy tough weeks. I had four. ended up having to have four surgeries in the hospital because I couldn't breathe um, because I, I wasn't getting enough oxygen to my lungs. And by all the trauma of the coughing, which it sounds weird, but when you have a C-section, you can't, you know, you can't, you're not, well, you know. I had one, one, yes. And it, like coughing is the most painful thing that's ever. Right. And I just remember crying and saying, I, I can't, I can't breathe, I can't cough. And finally, I just had to cough. And I was, I had all these um, towels holding my my wound because every time I cough, it would just hurt. And then eventually it busted the stitches. And then I had to go back to get that repaired, which and then I, um, I developed a hematoma, which was, you know, bleeding on the inside. And then somewhere along the line, the doctors ended up putting a... Um, something in my veins to keep blood clots from my from my heart and my lungs. And it was hard because I was so happy to be there with the baby. And then I was kind of out for half the time that she was there. I ended up being at the hospital for a week. It was an experience that I um, was expecting. But, you know, at the end of the day, I did get to take my baby home. And uh, we just had the best time. But, you know, through this whole experience, I realized, especially with the pregnancy part, I realized that... Um, a lot of women, especially black women, aren't listened to. And the rate of that black women are dying and the mortality rate of moms, it's not shocking. It's actually frightening. And, um, and then that's why I thought this is a great way to raise my voice. I've heard so many women say, oh, by the way, this was my experience and it was so similar to mine, but and the doctors didn't understand what I needed. And Unfortunately, I think because of who I am and because I've had so many injuries and because I really understand my body and I had the best doctor I feel like I could have had, she listened to me, but the others around didn't. But it was just like, if she wasn't there, then, you know, and a lot of a lot of women don't have that, that doctor that um, can be so supportive. So for those of you who don't know, Black women in the United States are over three times more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. 
And we should just all be shocked hearing that. That is unacceptable. It is unacceptable. Three times Black women, we are suffering mortality rates. And like I said before, it's frightening. It's beyond shocking. It's scary. It's like, okay, because of the color of my skin, my doctor probably won't listen to me as well. Or I don't know the reason, but something's happening in terms of we're not getting the same health care. We're not getting the same advantages. We're not getting just treated equally. It's a frightening thing that we have to we have to live in it is 2018, you know, it's almost 2019, is it? And we're living in a country that is super advanced technically. And it's just how how do we have a stat like that? It's 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 sad. I agree, and I think it's all those reasons. It's access to health care, it's insurance, mm-hmm. it's having their voices heard. Yes, so much has to change to get this right. So you said something already, but I'd like to go back on it. I mean, you're Serena Williams. You're world famous. You have access to some of the best doctors and hospitals in the world. What can other women do? Like, what's your recommendation for how they can lift up their voice in the moment and be heard? I don't have the answer to that. I wish I did. I think what I what I can do is continue to raise my voice and maybe some doctor out there, even if it's one or two, hears me. Maybe they'll go into the office the rest of their careers and they'll think differently um, while they're treating their patient or while they're with their patient. As for our ladies out there, just keep using your voice and be firm and, and really be insistent, you know, just keep knocking and knocking and knocking. Eventually someone will answer. And I feel like, you know, don't be afraid to speak up because it, it this is your life. It really matters. I am thrilled to be here with Dr. Janine Clayton, Director of the Office of Research on Women's Health for the National Institutes of Health. She's the author of over 80 scientific publications, journal articles, and book chapters, and an expert on the role of sex and gender in health and disease. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Dr. Clayton, can you tell us a little bit about your background to get started? And in particular, what led you to commit to studying sex and gender in healthcare? Sure. I'm actually an ophthalmologist by training, so I'm an eye doctor, and was doing clinical research here at NIH studying diseases that affect both women and men. In fact, I was studying autoimmune diseases that affect women more than men. But the reason I started doing what I do now is because I realized that two-thirds of the people that are visually impaired or blind in the world are women. That's two-thirds of the people in the United States that are blind are women. And the scary thought is we had no idea why that is. Women do live longer than men do. And so age is a risk factor for most eye diseases, but that doesn't explain all the difference. The fact that we couldn't explain that, despite our research efforts for many, many years, really disturbed me, and that got me interested in the role of sex and gender in health and disease. So I have to ask, have have we discovered why women are more likely to have issues with vision than men? Well, the good news is we know that because of differences in the immune system, the female immune system is actually more robust and vigorous than the male immune system. That makes us at increased risk for all autoimmune diseases, including those in the eye. The bad news is we don't know about all the other diseases that uh, affect women more than men. So there's much more work to be done there. So now you run the Office of Research on Women's Health at the NIH, which was formed in 1990 to ensure women were included in clinical research studies. 
What was medical research like before then, and what's changed? Before 1990, women were not routinely included in clinical trials of medications used to treat diseases that affect both men and women. In fact, women were actively excluded from those studies. And so, when a study was performed to test a medication, okay, wait, let me, sorry, let me jump in for one second.、Sure. What do you mean by actively excluded? So they were prohibited from participating in such studies. For example, there are inclusion and exclusion criteria for entering a study, and being a woman was actually an exclusion criterion at that time. Forgive me, but why would that be? So at that point in time, we really had a limited understanding of the fact that you could not study men and apply those findings to women. We just didn't know that. We thought that the findings from men would be relevant to women, and so we were protecting women by not including them. So women might get pregnant during the study. There was a concern about harming developing babies, and there really was not this understanding that sex, being male or female, has such a profound effect on your health and your disease status. Wow. Okay, that is so interesting. I know you in your own work. You draw an important distinction between the health of women and women's health. Why is that distinction so important? In the past, women's health was interpreted to mean basically bikini medicine, and by that I mean care of those parts that are covered by a bikini. Today, we know that women's health is everything that affects a woman from head to toe. What are the implications of changing from thinking just about Women's health to the health of women. So imagine a fifty-year-old woman, and she might come in to the emergency room saying that her heart feels like it's racing. And you might ask her, "Does she have a history of heart disease?" And that's important. More often than not, somebody might ask her if she is anxious or stressed, and whether these are really just palpitations from that. If you're coming from a health of women perspective, you are going to think about the entire experience of that woman in the context of her life. It's also important to take into consideration the age of a woman, because we know that certain transitions in life are really important. For example, that same 50-year-old woman, you might need to ask her: Did she have any complications when she was pregnant? Did she have pregnancy-induced hypertension or preeclampsia? High blood pressure during pregnancy, because that makes her at increased risk for cardiovascular disease later in life. So we like to think of a life course perspective as an integrated continuum of a person's life, not just separate developmental stages of life. So we know that medical research often excluded women, and we know that for too often. We were focused on a very narrow definition of women's health and how to think about it. What does that mean? Like, how often are women misdiagnosed? How often is it still happening? What are the types of diseases or ailments that are most misdiagnosed? Kind of walk me through as much of that as you can. You asked about whether women are misdiagnosed, and I would say often underdiagnosed or even not diagnosed at all. It may be because the way that we employ the tests that we use to diagnose a disease were based on studies that were done in men, 
or were targeted on disease patterns that occur predominantly in men. So I'll give you an example. The gold standard test for detecting heart disease or coronary artery disease is called a coronary angiogram. That test detects a very clear pattern of narrowed areas in the major blood vessels in your heart. Unfortunately, sometimes women have heart disease that has a pattern that has normal large coronary arteries, normal coronary angiogram, but abnormal small blood vessels or microvascular disease. So the diagnostic test that we use as the gold standard is more likely to detect the pattern of disease that is more typical for men. So cardiovascular disease, am I right? It kills more women than men each year, doesn't it? You're right. More women than men die of heart disease every year in the United States. I talked about how women might show up with heart disease differently than men. And so we need to develop tests that are better to detect the patterns of disease that women might have, the symptoms that women might report. In fact, women do have, you know, the classic crushing chest pain. It feels like an elephant standing on my chest. And those are not hard to diagnose, right? If somebody says that, you know they're having a heart attack. The problem is a woman might just come in and say, you know, I've been really tired for the last two weeks. I'm a little short of breath when I go up like five flights of stairs, you know, instead of my usual seven. Um, And my jaw is really hurting. That actually by itself can be a woman experiencing low oxygen in her heart and she's basically um, getting ready to have a heart attack. And we want to pick up a woman at that point and prevent her from having the heart attack. And do doctors sometimes, they've got a mistake, right? Shortness of breath and jaw. It's not hard to imagine they mistake it for something else. Is that true? So you have symptoms that are very nonspecific. Shortness of breath could be asthma, could be a lung infection, could be an allergic reaction, Um, Pain in the jaw or pain with swallowing could be a sore throat that's a viral infection. So those symptoms being so nonspecific make it a little harder to actually diagnose a woman who may be having a heart attack coming into the emergency room. But what we want to do is we want to make sure, and this is a term we use in medicine, that you have a high index of suspicion, that you think about, is this a heart attack? When you have a 55-year-old woman who's standing in front of you and says, this is not how I am normally. We also want to make sure that women say to their care providers, something's not right. We often know something's not right with our bodies. And if that's not your normal, it's really important to advocate for yourself and to let the care providers know this isn't right. That is such a good point. So... A couple weeks ago, I sat down with Serena Williams, and she suffered a pulmonary embolism, and she had deep vein thrombosis um, after the birth of her daughter. And she told a really pretty shocking story that most of the nurses and doctors around her didn't really listen to her and take her self-assessment seriously. As you probably know, Serena has become very outspoken around the dangers that women of color often face 
as they go through pregnancy and they have children and how high the mortality rate is in this country. Why? I actually showed a slide very recently showing the U.S. maternal mortality rate going up and it going down and everywhere else. In fact, our maternal mortality rate exceeds that of Libya, Turkey, and Vietnam. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we're clearly not doing something right. It's really about listening to women. It's about making sure that women have access to care. It's about our methods of detecting the causes of maternal mortality and morbidity. For every woman who actually dies having a baby, there are 10 near misses. There needs to be systemic attention to this issue. After a woman gives birth, all the attention is on the baby, as it, as it is understandably. But there needs to be attention on the woman, too. In the weeks immediately after giving birth, women are at high risk, and some more than others, women of color in particular, African-American women, regardless of income, regardless of access, have a much higher rate of poor outcomes than others. So is the reason for that biological, or is this really because they're being overlooked in the system? Great question, and I wish I knew the answer. We don't know why, and that's why NIH is focusing efforts on maternal mortality and morbidity. Efforts like the Human Placenta Project, where we are studying the placenta, which we believe has a key role in triggering preeclampsia or pregnancy-induced hypertension, we have a whole effort just on studying and understanding the placenta. So the answer is we don't have all the answers but at least we are now asking some of the right questions. So, doctor, you talked a lot about women being excluded from medical research and that you at the NIH and others have really started to focus on including women in medical research. Can you give us a couple examples of some studies that have been done that were really illuminating and you think are moving the dial and you know, allowing women to get better health care? Good question. Well, the good news is now over half of the participants of NIH-supported clinical research are women. The bad news is the studies are, when they are published in scientific journals, fewer than a third of those publications from the phase three, the big clinical trials, have any results for men and women listed separately. So the women are in the studies, but the results for the women and for the men are not presented always separately in the publications. So we've been working with journal editors and publishers to advance the notion that those papers really must include results disaggregated by sex. The problem is, if those results are not separated for men and women, we don't know how well the results apply 
to both men and to women. Is there a study that really stands out to you where the fact that women are now included explicitly in the study and that we have that visibility, it's really changed the way we think about a certain type of disease or a certain type of illness and how we think about treating women. I'm I'm looking for just like a, a really clear example of why getting this right really matters. We actually know that nicotine replacement therapy, like gum that has nicotine or a nicotine patch, does not work as well in women as it works in men. So how might a doctor change their treatment? Okay, I'm not saying they're not going to try the nicotine patch or the nicotine gum first, because that's a really safe and first step. But if they know that it's less effective in women, they may say, okay, we're going to try that for four weeks in you. And if it doesn't work, they may be more prone to move to the next level of treatment more quickly in a woman than in a man. So it may affect their treatment algorithm because they understand that upfront. Do we know why? So we know a lot about um, sex differences and how men's and women's brains respond to addiction. For example, women become addicted more rapidly than men do when they use cocaine and when they drink alcohol. It's a phenomenon called telescoping. So a woman could be drinking the exact same amount per body weight as a man does. She's going to become alcohol dependent more rapidly than a man does. And the scarier part is the same amount of alcohol damages a woman's organs like her liver and her brain more than the same amount of alcohol damages a man's brain or liver. So what's really interesting to me and maybe I'm just not reading the right things or kind of watching the right you know, news programs, whatever it is. How do I not know that? So we need to do a better job at getting the word out about these differences between men and women. And you know what you can do? You can keep asking us these questions. Is it different for men and women? And that's another thing that I tell anyone in my family, if you're going to get prescribed a medication, ask Do we know if this drug works differently in men and women? Do we know if the adverse effects of this drug are different in men and women? I used to take a medication every day that is now withdrawn from the market uh, because it has a severe side effect that is more common in women than in men. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Clayton. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it as well. We're taking a short break, but we'll be right back. I am here with Dr. Esther Chu, emergency doctor and associate professor at Oregon Health and Science University. Her research focuses on women's health, and she frequently speaks about racism and sexism in healthcare. Dr. Chu goes by Esther, so I'm going to call her Esther for the interview. Last week, I chatted with Dr. Janine Clayton, who, as you know, is at the NIH, and she really walked me through the history of women being excluded from medical research. As an emergency doctor, you obviously see how this plays out on the front lines. What's happening? So we know in all these conditions that I see on a daily basis, women 
do not fare as well as men. So, for example, we know that women do worse than men in functional outcomes after having a stroke. We know that while the incidence of stroke is decreasing for men, it's increasing for women. We haven't been very good as scientists and as physicians in in decreasing the the incidence of of stroke. And we also know that when we have defined evidence-based therapies for things like heart attack and stroke, they're less likely to be implemented for women. Now, all these things are multifactorial, but the picture on whole is that we are doing less well for women in healthcare than for men. So one of the things that was really interesting when I talked to Dr. Clayton I get that research historically has excluded women, but I was really surprised that even now when studies are done that include women, a lot of times that's not included in the published findings, or you kind of alluded to this, it's not finding its way to doctors who are on the front lines. What's going on there? Yeah, I think there is always a delay from when we start including both male and female sexes in research to having that translate to the bedside when you come into the hospital. And so in the NIH, I think we're better at getting both male and female rats, for example, into studies. I mean, basic science researchers have to demonstrate that they are considering both male and female rats, you know. So then you go from rat or mouse models, animal models into human models. You have to show that they don't cause harm. Then you can move ahead with larger scale studies. And then the research gets published. But sometimes researchers aren't very good at reporting results stratified by sex or gender. And then that research has to get disseminated to uh, healthcare professionals everywhere. And there's the education and dissemination piece, so people know to apply that to their practice. So the timeline between that first rat study and then coming into the hospital and knowing that that research is being applied, I mean, that's many, many years, probably on the order of 15 or 20 years. So we can improve the science to be more inclusive of female uh, subjects, but we know we've done that so recently that we're really not going to feel the impact of that at the bedside for, for a long time. So I have to say, as a woman myself and the mother of a girl, it's a bit disconcerting to hear how long it's going to take to really see a lot of change. What can we do in the meantime? How can we advocate for ourselves? I have a couple of suggestions. I mean, I do think that a narrative that I frequently hear from my female relatives and friends is, I went to the doctor and I felt that my experience was not validated or that I had an idea for what I wanted to happen um, with my care, like with my choice of contraception, with, um, you know, with how seriously my complaints are being taken. Um, And uh, this to me, in a very qualitative level, seems to be happening much more to my female friends and relatives. So a lot of the work that I do is talking about bias towards women and how physicians need to be aware of those and really try to address their implicit biases as they go out in the world and interact with people of different backgrounds. Um, But there is a piece for now that is sort of on the patient. Um, And so I think there is some need for women to be strong and not feel bad or guilty about advocating for themselves. Um, we, a friend of mine coined this phrase, uh, we haven't proven this with data, but but we, we have this phenomenon where, where women patients will come in and, uh, and get a little bit of condescending care, um, where the male 
usually an older male physician feels like he knows what's best for a younger female patient. We call it clinical mansplaining, um, where sometimes <laughs> women don't feel I'm like familiar they with mansplaining. Yes. Yep. You're familiar with mansplaining. We think there's like a very specific sub-typology of mansplaining that happens in the, the clinical exam room um, where women feel like their desires and their goals for healthcare a little bit ignored you know, at at in the hands of a, a male physician who is uh, who has a sense that they know better um, than they do about about some of their healthcare choices, and it doesn't feel very patient centered, and uh, it seems to happen a lot to women. So I think we kind of want to start this clinical, no, you know, down with clinical mansplaining campaign uh, where where women have more agency in the exam room. I think there's another piece that can happen. Maybe also slowly, but I think we need to really diversify our workforce. Um, there's a good amount of data coming out showing that, uh, first of all, women give excellent care when we look at major clinical outcomes at, in the hands of female versus uh, male physicians. Um, we find that females are at least as good in some circumstances. They may outperform men. Um, and, and I'm not talking about do patients like having a female doctor. I'm talking about uh, mortality outcomes, you know, 30-day bounce-back outcomes. Um, but there was one study in particular that really caught my eye. This was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in August of this year, where they found that among heart attack patients admitted to Florida hospitals over a 20-year period, female patients having heart attacks treated by male physicians had higher mortality than female patients treated by female physicians. And then the study went one step further, and they just looked at the proportion of women physicians working in these emergency departments. And they found that when there was a higher proportion of women physicians, male physicians did better in outcomes for their female patients having heart attacks. So, you know, in the corporate world, you diversify the workforce in terms of gender and racial and ethnic minorities, and you find that your bottom line, which in the corporate world is really your financial returns, they improve. And what we're seeing is in the healthcare setting, where our bottom line is, I mean, also money, but is primarily patient outcomes, um, that bottom line improves when you diversify the workforce. So it's clear from talking to you that more women physicians is part of the answer, not the whole answer, but part of it. What do you think we can do to encourage more women to get into the field? And I feel like that's happening naturally, but clearly not enough if two-thirds of doctors are still men. So in June of this year, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine came out with a report that showed that in academic science, engineering, and medicine, there are very high rates of sexual harassment, but that it's worst in medicine. And they reported on research that showed that by the time women graduate from medical school, about 50% of them have experienced sexual harassment. And so uh, this is a terrible problem. And the report was very good in providing an overview of potential causes of this. But um, it is clear that it is an organizational problem and that when you have these male-dominated, male-led environments, that is basically a very rich petri dish for harassment to occur. Um, And then they looked at the downstream outcomes of harassment. And what we find is that when you've been sexually harassed, it is the number one thing that 
impacts women's careers. And then the other really interesting thing about the outcomes is it doesn't just affect the women. So the entire group the woman works in, you know, whether it's her team or her division or her department, all of that is is like a toxin. It kind of spreads from the target of harassment, spreads out to their entire working group. And actually an entire organization can be poisoned by the occurrence of harassment. When women are harassed, what do they do? I mean, it's a very natural. You have organizational disengagement, so you, you are not as mentally in the game at your as your workplace, which is so heartbreaking when you think about we need women to give good care to women. You know, who gives reproductive health care? Who gives the majority of women's health care? It's women physicians. And yet we are e- exposing them to harassment. They're feeling demoralized. They're not as engaged. Uh, many of them will step down from leadership positions because of harassment. It really looks like from this report that a good portion of it can probably be explained by the culture of medicine for women. So um, I really think we have to do profound change um, in the culture of healthcare before we can fix the problem of getting more diversification of our workforce so that we can fix the problem of having poorer treatment and outcomes for women. So we've talked a bit about medical research. We've talked about having more diverse teams of doctors. Is there anything else that the industry needs to be doing to get better in terms of giving women equal care? I mean, there there has to be this implementation piece, you know, and so what inspires hospitals, medical schools, all health professions really to advance the science and get excited about integrating this into our practice and our educational systems, you know? I think basically anyone who kind of is in this position of being responsible for hospitals and training institutions meeting these quality requirements they have to be wired to understanding what drives these disparities um, and basically uh, compelling organizations from the outside to show that they have a vested interest in this. Do you have any really specific recommendations for what women can say to their doctors to get them to slow down and take them seriously? Yeah, well, when I talk about other types of gender biases that are very prevalent, Uh, And in particular, any circumstances where women have to negotiate for something, you know, whether it's their salary or their clinical care, I, and it's difficult because you feel like you're working against gender norms and you worry that the other person will not receive it well. Um, I often advise people to draw out the implicit bias. Um, And so, you know, when I'm negotiating or asking for something tough, I often will start by saying something like, now... I sometimes am perceived as being more assertive than most women, and many people will not like me as much because of that, but I hope that's not the case here. (laughs) You know, you sort of call out the implicit bias and then explain to them why they're not going to have that same knee-jerk reaction to a woman being a little bit more outspoken and assertive about her care. And I I often feel that that's, uh, that's disarming while also very making the potential bias explicit. Um, and hopefully evoking a response in that person that, well, I'm, of course, not going to be biased towards you because you're behaving against gender norms. So that's just one little tip. I mean, I wish I didn't need to tell women to do this, um, but I sometimes feel like it's necessary. And I think calling out the bias can be effective when you really feel like it's there. And it doesn't have to be confrontational. You know, it can be it can be a friendly, um, I think it can be a friendly thing that actually makes that person your ally um, upstream against their potential biases. I like that strategy. We do that a lot as well. You know, we have 
negotiation recommendations, and we always kind of caveat them with, we wish we didn't have to tell you to do this, but in the meantime, <laughs> until yeah. we, you know, until we improve bias and we improve the system, here are some things that you can do to get better results. Well, this has been great. I think we covered a lot of ground, and I know that I learned a lot. I'm a, I'm a little depressed, but um, <laughs> I know. I'm a, I, no, I'm a little depressed. But but I think it's really helpful, and I hope the big takeaway for women and men listening is just to be real advocates for themselves and get yeah. educated and ask a lot of questions and poke on things to make sure they're getting good health care. Totally. I really am so grateful that you're tackling this problem. I think it's something we don't talk about often enough. So it's just thrilling to me that you're doing it. Huge thanks to Dr. Esther Chu and Dr. Janine Clayton for sharing their expertise with us. But more than that, for the work they're doing to combat bias in healthcare. As they said and all our guests said, the state of medicine is not so great for women, but change starts with awareness. Too many women have stories and we need to share them broadly so more women feel empowered to speak up and demand the healthcare they deserve. And as consumers, we all need to speak up and loudly and demand better healthcare for women and girls. Everybody deserves good healthcare. It's as simple as that. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Jordan Bell, and special thanks to Katie Miserani, Ali Borer, Megan Rooney, and Sarah Maisel from the Lean In team, and Lauren Merritt Stitcher. Our engineers are Rachel Bain, Diane Bernard, Andrew Stelzer, Josh Millman, and Joanne DeLuna, and our music was composed by Casey Holford. This has been Tilted, and I'm your host, Rachel Thomas. Okay.